Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, Dr. Rachel Gross, an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, and one of our Outdoor Recreation Archive fellows, talks about her most recent research, which focuses on the relationship between big box stores, outdoor brands, and outdoor consumers over the decades. All right. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase. And joining me on our History of Gear series, Dr. Rachel Gross, once again, Assistant Professor at the University of Colorado, Denver, and our 2022 Outdoor Recreation Archive Research Fellow. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here, Chase. Thanks. It's great to have you back. You might almost take the the championship belt for a recurring guests. It's you or Bruce Johnson now. I don't know which has done more, but you've you've uh, come back quite a few times. So, well, luckily there are there are unlimited numbers of stories to talk about. So I hope that that um, we continue to have this chance. I'm sure we will. Um, to today, I mean, I really wanted to just chat with you a little bit about your experience um, producing some of the works um, as a part of the. Uh, fellowship program that you're a part of through our Outdoor Rec Archive. Um, you came to visit us in 2022, is that right? Okay. Summer? In May. Um, as a part of a proposal, you were we awarded you the, the fellowship. We're so excited to have you come out and your proposal was so interesting. Do you mind just sharing a little bit first about your background and then maybe a little bit about the proposal Absolutely. The that you're, you're doing? Sure. So I'm a historian of the outdoor gear industry. Um, And what that means is that I write about the history of both clothing and equipment companies in the U.S. from the Civil War all the way up until the present. And so in my role as a historian, I've gone to archives and libraries, as well as corporate collections all over the country to um, examine what are the changes in technology? How have these new products been advertised over time? And then also, what have consumers' responses been to these um, gems of products uh, that we've that we've embraced over the last many decades? So that's the general area that I research in as a historian of the 19th and 20th century. And then the project that I was particularly focused on for the fellowship last year was on the history of big box retailing and its relationship to the outdoor industry. Now, this project was part of a larger, is part of a larger um, edited volume that I'm I'm an editor of, along with a couple of other environmental historians. Um, And in that project, we're examining the link between business history and histories of the environment by looking at big box retail. Now, many American listeners um, will know that 
big box stores, right? These really large format retail stores that you can find surrounded by miles of parking lots all over the United States um, have really shaped the way that consumers experience shopping in the last 20 years, for sure, and that dates uh, further back as well. And so this project is my attempt to integrate the history of the outdoor industry into these broader histories of places like Walmart and Target, which often get the most attention when it comes to historians of business looking at retail. And I saw it as crucial to understand that specialty products, like outdoor products, have a place in this larger narrative. And then if we want to understand how big box retail has reshaped the American landscape and shopping landscape as well, we have to include them in that part of that larger story. That is precisely what I was here uh, at Logan to look at. It's really interesting. I think this topic of like that, like the outdoor industry and big box, like that relationship, I think can be a little contentious at times. And in the last few years, we've seen, um, some uh, just some some controversy spring up around you know companies like Backcountry and specialty retailers or Walmart and and Moose Jaw Mountaineering and you know being acquired and now decoupling. Um, so there's always this really interesting interaction between the big box and then specialty outdoor retailers. What was the most surprising thing that you found um, in your research when you were digging through the materials in the collection? I was very much expecting to find the kind of contention that you're talking about, Chase, um, in part because I I had always understood um, the outdoor industry to define itself in opposition to that other retail landscape to say we're we are not big box our our reputation how we operate what we sell is really antithetical to that world. And one of the things that I was surprised to see in the documents at the um, Outdoor Recreation Archive is how deeply connected those two worlds were. In fact, it wasn't really a question of contention between one industry and another, but rather that the outdoor world has always been a part of the larger changing retail landscape in the U.S., which means it couldn't have escaped the big box transformations of the 1980s, 90s, and early 2000s. So in other words, the biggest thing I uncovered was how um, stores like, say, Target or Costco actually had a role in um, in in purveying outdoor products from companies even such as the North Face um, throughout the 90s and early 2000s, and that that goes against some of the internal industry narratives about being very separate from that industry in that world. Right. I, I was surprised when I found out about, I mean, Abercrombie and Fitch. I mean, that's that's one of the early, I, I don't know if you'd call them a big box retailer of the early 1900s, but I mean, companies like that or Montgomery Ward, Sears, I mean, there's, there's always been some big box retailer. I don't know if you could call them that or if you'd classify them that way throughout the history of the outdoor industry. Are there others that I'm I'm missing or is that an accurate description of some of these companies? Yeah. So I do include all of the stores that you just mentioned this story. Um, and I would say I put other a few others on that list, Walmart, Kmart as well. But I think that one of the important ways that history can inform our conversation here is helping us to define what counts as a big box store. Because Abercrombie and Fitch, which called itself the foremost outfitter of the early 20th century, um, based in New York City, 
was not a big box store. That terminology and indeed the definitions that um, scholars used around around those type of retail environments really didn't come about at least until the 1970s. And so when we look at Abercrombie and Fitch in the early 20th century, part of what I like to note is the historical comparison and how in many ways Abercrombie shaped some of the um, expectations of what a big box store looks like now. So they, they paved the way even though how the store operated wouldn't have made it count within that larger kind of big box environment. So Abercrombie and Fitch um, in the early 20th century had a uh, 12-story skyscraper um, in on Madison Avenue and it uh, in New York City. And each floor was uh, was completely filled with different types of products. So there was the hunting and fishing section, the women's floor up on the roof. There was a fishing pond that you could test um, uh, goods in, like your fishing poles or your boots. There was a cabin. It was called the Davy Crockett cabin, also built up on the roof where you could go and um, use it to test out products. In many ways, those things might seem familiar to listeners, which is to say, if you go to a very large outdoor store now, you're going to find um, not necessarily different floors, but whole sections devoted to different types of sporting activities, dedicated sections for both men's and women's clothing, dedicated equipment sections, as well as something that Abercrombie and Fitch got very good at, which is the displays that made the store in the middle of an urban environment feel like a green respite from city life. In other words, it was that outdoorsy feeling, the paint colors, the animal heads up on the wall, the construction of tents inside of the store itself, rather than just leaving them to people's imaginations, all evoked this kind of nature setting, even inside of a retail environment. Those are some of the hallmarks now of big box retail stores in the outdoor industry that date back more than 100 years. And so um, I use that historical example to point out that many of the things that some uh, I would say business scholars might say are uh, revolutions in the retailing world of, of the last 30 years are really not revolutions at all. They hearken back to these earlier models of how to operate um, large scale stores. So Abercrombie and Fitch is one precursor that I think is important to mention when it comes to big box retailing environment, but we have to get into the um, other transformations in how Americans went shopping over the last century to understand how we got to the big box stores, the stores that are 30,000 square feet, or perhaps 130,000 square feet by the early um, uh, 21st century. Um, so I, I can do that, but I just wanted to mention there, there are two different questions that you're asking. One is about the historical parallels to other types of stores. Um, and then the second is about what surprising mass market retailers played a role in the out in the purveying of outdoor goods to Americans, mostly in the second half of the 20th century that perhaps we haven't considered. And I think both of those are interesting strands to pull on. Well, I, I definitely think the parallels with a, a company like Bass Pro Shops or Cabela's is really interesting. Like what you're describing with a fishing, you know, a fishing pond on the roof and a cabin and, and, uh, you know, taxidermy and am, animals that you're describing at Cabela's mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways or, or a Bass Pro Shops. And, you know, I, I recently talked with someone at, at Bass Pro and they were sharing that they create their stores to be a destination. Mm -hmm. And they had shared, you know, the, the number of miles most, um, most people who are visiting their stores will travel. And it was something like, 
I don't want to say the, the wrong number, but it was like over a hundred miles. Most oh, yeah. of their customers would travel to go to a Bass Pro Shops because it was a destination. Um, and it sounds similar um, to, to the Abercrombie model. Um, I, I love the work that you do because so much of it is uncovering these things that we think are revolutionary or new, but have been done, you know, a hundred years ago. And and one that that comes up pretty often for me when I think about Abercrombie and Fitch is this idea that, oh, companies now are are really revolutionary because they're creating apparel that can travel, you know, can go from the mountain to to the city, right? And and so many companies kind of pride themselves on, you know, we make clothing for both. Mm-hmm. And it, it, they position it as something new, but you know, you know better than anyone the the slogan for Abercrombie for the longest time was the from the Blaze Trail to the Boulevard. Yeah, where they where they cross, where they cross, where they meet, exactly. Right. So, I mean, that was their whole model a hundred years ago, this idea of that intersection between outdoor and city life. Um, you know, we, we talk about that now, but that's not a new concept. No, it's really not. And I think when it comes to understanding the outdoor industry's re- contentious relationship to um, uh, mass merchandisers, um, I think one of the most important things to understand is that the the internal debates about um, where should outdoor goods be sold has to do with this notion of the mass market and who deserves to be considered a real outdoors person and a real outdoors consumer. That was really the question at the core of this examination of big box retail at the end of the 20th century. It's quite different from if you were studying a Target or Walmart in some ways, because the stores are different, but also the kind of deeper question that um, people are asking at the corporate level that trickles down to consumers is different as well, which has to do with the fact that some companies see their products as quite special Um and they they are. I mean, I love I love this stuff. Um, but I mean specialist in the sense that they're not for everyday people, right? They're for a niche group of perhaps extreme athletes, high performers, and they don't necessarily want to see them used in every place and on every body. And so, in that sense, part of the contention has to do with the fact that some brands would prefer not to be sold in places that are accessible to all in terms of both cost, location, and um, who regularly um, frequents the stores because it might underbrand, uh, undermine how they see their brand identity. And so, the notion that um, there's something perhaps wrong with selling a, a a backpack from or a sleeping bag from the North Face in the 1990s at a place like Costco isn't just about oh well um, Costco sells cheap goods um, that are not at the cutting edge because maybe it's last year's model that's part of it but also that if a really high end sleeping bag is available at a place like Costco that might mean that anybody has access to it. And that's going to diminish the uh, reputation of that brand among the more elite consumers who are high performers in their sport. And I, I don't I don't have the answer to what is the right balance between those types of questions. But I think noting that that's one of the things that the outdoor industry is weighing when they when they talk about big box retail and the availability of goods broadly at these kind of stores um, helps us unpack some of the hostilities towards that model of retailing. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, I, I know that this is all very like relevant right now. There's been a number of stories about brands expressing that they don't want to be carried in some of these big box stores. And mm-hmm. that's that's caused a lot of interesting discussion. So I think it's, it's a really great, great topic to be digging into. Um, you know, 
were there specific materials that you were looking for in in the outdoor rec archive that helped with this work? Like what specifically were you looking to dig into while you were here? Sure. Sure. So, I mean, that question is both about this project and about the nature of doing historical research in archives. Um, I think the the top priority for me was actually getting to see these archives in person for the first time. I was so excited about the uh, being able to access it. And I really had to limit myself in a short trip to stay focused on one particular academic question because there's unlimited you know, richness in the materials that you all have collected. Um, so my tactic for the week of research was to hone in on collections I thought would represent industry perspectives as a whole rather than one specific company. And so in that sense, there are some material um, um, like the um, news reports from, from industry insiders, um, pamphlets from the Outdoor Industry Association or people who attended their meetings, where I thought there would be a perspective about um like, oh, you know, here's a threat that this new design of, you know, retail stores is either something we have to fight against or adapt to. I wasn't sure where those would be located, but I didn't think that looking at, say, the work of an individual gear designer would necessarily yield answers to the types of questions I was interested in for this project. Rather, I thought that looking at places where um, people are reflecting on industry trends as a whole and kind of contemporary business practices might be a place where they showed up. So what I'm saying, in other words, is I did not know where I might find answers to these questions. I didn't know who the main characters would necessarily be. And I wasn't sure either if there would be a set of examples that I was going to be able to use. So um, your listeners might think, oh, that's just a a fishing expedition in some ways. No, this is the historical method is um, I knew that the, the the archives in Logan were the place, if there are such answers, that they would be located and then figuring out what types of materials might have relevant um, material to address these questions helps me narrow in on the right set of questions. It's always possible to go to an archive thinking, oh, I'm really going to explore, you know, this shift in technology that happened in the 1980s. And to find out, oh, you know, that's really the wrong historical time period. And it turns out the technology I'm interested in, I need to look at the 1970s. That's actually the benefit of going to the archives is that you you don't just find answers you're looking for. You find out sometimes you ask the wrong questions and that you need to adjust based on the primary materials that you found. And, and that to me is the mark of success of a, of a research trip is that you're not just confirming what you already thought, but rather adjusting what your questions are based on what the material in the archive is telling you. So you may have already touched on this, but where did you, did you have to pivot? You know, did you go in with a certain idea and that idea can, you know, ended up being different? Like where did you have to adjust or pivot based on Mm -hmm. what you found in the collection? Um, so the, the, in, during the week that I was visiting, I didn't have to adjust too much. I stuck with these broader kind of industry-wide perspectives. The challenge was that I didn't find a lot on the types of questions I was asking. So sometimes throughout the 1990s in a lot of these um, industry updates, I would see questions or um, news updates related to uh, Costco or Walmart or Target, things like that. That was really useful to me, but they weren't common. And so what that suggests to me is two possibilities. One is uh, I'm not paying attention to the right kinds of questions or I don't have the access to the documents, or um, maybe there's a reason these questions aren't represented 
in the archives that I'm looking at. And I think it's a bit of both. So the pivoting for me didn't happen during my week in Logan, but rather as I was trying to write up my findings in the months that followed, what I reflected on is that for most of the history of the outdoor industry, these mass merchandisers from Sears in the early, in the middle of the 20th century and Montgomery Ward to, um, to uh, Kmart and then later Walmart and Target, uh, industry professionals themselves have not considered them to be a part of the outdoor world. And so they're not represented in the documents, not because they weren't big players, but rather because of this notion of self-identity and what stories counted as a part of the outdoor industry. And I don't think I would have really recognized that fully if I hadn't seen those silences in the materials that I looked at at Logan. And one of the reasons that I that I suggested it's a silence rather than actually these are just separate stories is that throughout the second half of the 20th century, the majority of Americans who participated in outdoor sports got the goods that they used from these mass merchandisers, not from specialty stores. So not from Bass Pro or REI, but rather from a place like Walmart. And that's not a critique of these consumers. That is just a reflection of the patterns of consumption in the second half of the 20th century. This is where cheap and low-end products were available to the vast majority of Americans who were just casual participants in, say, camping, rather than dedicated uh, mountain climbers who were expecting to reach the peak and needed really high-end products to do so. And so that I didn't really understand that before I went to the archives. I knew there was something about the relationship between the industries I was interested in. But over time, I used both the documents that I saw in Logan and also these kind of a broader set of um, basically business journal and business newspaper uh, articles and, and records to, to understand that there was a silence there, even though consumers were buying products in vast numbers in this whole other set of stores not represented in your collections and not even represented in my mind as a historian of the outdoor industry who thought she really knew what was going on. So in that sense, there was a larger pivot. I wasn't necessarily looking at the documents that are internal to the outdoor industry that would have included these stories. And so I had to broaden out my search in the months that followed. That's great. Um, it's, I, I think, um, it's interesting. Like the more that we've worked together, um, it, like we've recognized materials that we need to have in the collection that were previously missing. And the collection started off with, um, a focus on catalogs and magazines. Um, but I know, you know, you had mentioned to us a few times, the importance of these industry trade publications. And I imagine that's where you spent a lot of your time when you were in the archive, but did you, was it a lot of Specialty news is that where you're spending a lot of time? Yeah, or? specialty news, and but really there there were a couple of others. Um, I'd have to look up the name N O O N. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, um, National yeah, outdoor National, outfitter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Something National outdoor um, outfitters news. Yeah, yeah. Which isn't around in the same format today, and I hadn't known about that. And so that's one of the things archive trips can give you is I hadn't put that on my list when I applied. Of I must look at National Outdoor. Uh, you know th this news catalog because I never heard of it. But when I got there, it was a part of the um, broader industry collection. Um, and that was a really useful source because it was, again, reflections about sh broad shifts in the industries directed at people who are working in it. And so in that sense, it's really different from what you would find in public facing advertisements or catalogs, because 
Um, there, in theory, in trade industry publications, you're going to get the inside story of how professionals are talking to each other. So if there's a certain way of presenting products or a certain concern, like we don't want to sell in this way or to that set of people, it's not going to show up in a catalog because they've already worked out all those details in their industry publications beforehand. And so um, I wouldn't exactly call an industry or a trade journal a, a juicy source, but for historians, they can be incredibly useful and rich materials. Right. Well, and increasingly rare, I feel like. I mean, we've, to our knowledge, we have the only known complete copy of specialty news that's publicly available mm-hmm. in print form. So, um, yeah, that's that material has been really hard to come by. And we're really fortunate that we've had great donors who have been willing to send that to us and entrusting us with it. Mm-hmm, um, in, in terms of like where the project goes from here and or, or what some of the outputs are that, that some of our listeners could interact with, I know some of this is ongoing, um, but what, what was kind of the, the deliverable that you were hoping to, to produce or the sure. type of work at the end of all of this? Uh, so there's two different things. One is, um, I wrote a chapter of this book on big box retail and environmental history. Um, and it's on uh, the history of um, the relationship between um, large scale retail formats and the outdoor industry and reflects on the kind of um, conversation we just had, the contentious nature of the outdoor industry's um, ideas about um, stores like Walmart and Target, the way that they have been overlapping rather than really separate, despite our kind of historical amnesia about that connection, um, and the ways that the outdoor industry in turn has shifted to adapt many of the practices of the big box retail stores that it purports to uh, want to distance itself from. So I, I think one of the things that promoted that pushed me in that direction was being really interested in the way that as an outdoor consumer myself, many of the stores, though not all of them that I frequent in a, in a large city like Denver are big box stores, right? They're large scale um, uh, stores that have uh, equipment and products for all sorts of sports, as well as for the casual outdoor adjacent consumer. Um, And they do quite well at hitting that combination of markets. Um, And so I was interested in understanding how do I put that kind of experience I have as a consumer in historical perspective. That's what the article does. And it links all the way back to the Abercrombie and Fitch days to try and show here's the trajectory of how the outdoor industry fits into the broader shifts in how people go shopping in the last hundred years. Um, For listeners who are interested in that product, it will be out. um, That book will be out next year. And it includes not just histories of Walmart and Target, but also a history of um, Bass Pro Shops. So <laughs> I know that there'll be people who are excited about that specific chapter that my um, co-editor Sherry Shu has written as well. And then more broadly, as I mentioned, I'm a historian of the outdoor industry and it, I have interests that go back in terms of historical time period, 150 years. And so my book on the history of the outdoor industry in the U.S. will also be out next year. So it's a long list of historical reading for folks who are <laughs> into that kind of thing that I'm I'm sure we will discuss more in, in future episodes. Is that article out or coming out this year? Or So it's were... a book chapter rather than oh, an article, okay. Okay. which means it, it won't be out until the um, book itself is out uh, probably next spring. Okay, gotcha. Great. Well, and we'll definitely let our listeners know when, when all of those... Or well, both of those books are available. Um, I, I did want to step back and and 
for listeners and for myself, it's, it's always nice to hear this from your perspective, but um, what do you feel like the state of academic scholarship in the outdoor industry is currently? I know that when we first met, it, it, it felt like you were the only person doing this. I know there's some others. I mean, you're the one who I feel like you're the foremost person doing this type of work um, in the outdoor industry and focused on outdoor business. Um, but but for listeners who might not know anything about the academic world and academic scholarship, what is the state of outdoor academics from mm-hmm. that business perspective? If sure. you can share that. Yeah. So there are a few different strands to pay attention to. One is that um, schools or programs like yours, Chase, and, and there's nothing, of course, just like your program, but there are similar types of um, degree programs, both at the undergraduate and graduate level at universities around the Western United States that focus on the outdoor industry in some way. And all of those programs, even if they have a focus on, say, business and sustainability versus product design, have to have course materials that somehow link to the industry itself. So one strand of scholars who focus on the outdoor industry do work in this arena. They might be um, scholars of business or economics. They might focus on management. Um, They might focus on sustainability. They might focus on product design itself. Um, Those are all different academic fields, but they come together in these places where students have a very clear interest in a professional path in the outdoor world itself. Um, very rarely, though, or, or is that set of scholars, including people like me who are uh, humanities scholars, which means people who ask uh, questions about the meaning of uh, the outdoor industry or how people have engaged with it in, in both the past and the present. And that's not really a critique. That's just a reflection on the fact that many of these degree programs are quite focused on professional credentialing, which means that they don't necessarily take a humanities bent to them. And so the other part of the world of scholarship on the outdoor industry are these scholars in um, fields such as history, and there are a few others as well, certainly sociology would have their fair share, um, who are examining the past and present of Americans' engagement with the outdoor world and trying to understand how it came to be the way that it is. Um, They don't necessarily come away with a set of predictions of here's where the business is going, or here are the top skills that you need to have to be a success in this industry, as much as kind of deeper reflections on um, what kinds of questions have we asked or not yet considered about our relationship to the products that we buy as consumers, um, or what historical stories might be able to tell us about the narratives that the industry is now trying to push in the 21st century. So, for instance, you might find really cool scholarship on the history of uh, artificial snowmaking uh, around the not just the West, but the entire United States. And that's also a historical perspective from the last hundred years. That's related to the types of work that the type of work that I do, um, because it's about putting the outdoor industry business history in perspective and linking it to people's recreational practices. A lot of scholars like me get started in this world because they want to research something that they love, right? They have a passion for it personally. And you're going to find that outdoors people are really effective scholars in this area because they know the starting point for what people care about and the types of questions to ask. And they can go in lots of different directions. So I've found that for a lot of scholars of the outdoor industry, they're starting with 
histories of recreation. Like they think they're going to write about skiing in the backcountry, for instance. And then what they uncover over the course of months or years of research is that to understand the recreational experience, what they have to do is look at the organizations, right, from um, rescue organizations to businesses um, to clubs that help support the practices that they came to love themselves as consumers. And so often they take a, a turn towards the history of industry, a history of the business behind um, these uh, recreational activities, because they see that as the most useful way to understand the world that we live in now. When you got started in this in this space, um, and was there anyone that you were looking up to? Like how, how long have people been like researching and writing about the history of the business of the outdoor industry, or is that a more recent phenomenon? Um, so there's a long history of people writing about that as a part of larger projects. And I, I would say that the intellectual trajectory that I am most indebted to are historians of the environment who've long questioned this notion that the wilderness, right? The beautiful nature out there is somehow separate from our modern commercial lives. And so that starting point is uh, decades old. It's not, this is not something that I've revolutionized. It's, I'm very much indebted to many scholars who've made those kind of arguments before. And they, they've taken that in many directions, but the first way that um, that historians tried to explore that question was to look at national parks and other wild places themselves and to tell human and natural histories that help us kind of show in a deep perspective how the wilderness that's seemingly pristine and untouched actually has very complicated histories that we have to tell in order to understand how we got to a point that we could call it untrammeled by the middle of the 20th century. And so those histories, though they're not about the industry itself necessarily, the outdoor industry, they are my starting point for asking these types of questions. Um, there are a few works that I could point to that do that do this kind of um, questioning in a more focused way. One really good example is Annie Gilbert Coleman's book, Ski Style, um, which is about the history of um, skiing in the American West. And it focuses both on kind of the ski infrastructure, but also the people who go skiing and what kind of culture that they help to build. Um, that's not exactly about the industry, but it also is, right? You know, it's it's a different focus than mine, but the approach that Coleman takes there, the types of questions that she asked, um, helped me figure out what was so exciting about this work. So for instance, um, she has a, a, a good uh, piece of work on on ski bunnies and the kind of gendering of different types of skiers and how the stereotypes that Americans have about who goes skiing and who counts as a real skier has shaped what the sport looks like. That isn't quite about the industry, but you can't examine a stereotype like that one without looking at, well, what are the popular images of who's a skier? And that means looking at catalogs, magazines, where are the publications where these images get promulgated? And so in that sense, there are really great historical works like Coleman's that I have used in order to ask similar questions about a different part of the industry. I don't focus on skiing, right? But rather mostly summertime activities. It just, it just worked out that way, but also a clearer focus on industry first rather than necessarily um, the uh, one particular sport. What what do you think the opportunities are for future scholarship in in this space? Do you think the future's bright for for research in this space? Like I guess where are we in the in the grand scheme of, you know, 
academic scholarship in the outdoor space. I'm sure there's a lot more to do than has already been done, I guess is is one way of saying it. Is that accurate? I, I, oh, I think that's true. Absolutely. And part of that is because of the collecting work that not just you and your team have done, but also that corporations themselves have been doing over the last decade. Historical work in this area and even contemporary scholarship is only possible when there are documents to look at, right? When there is material made available to scholars that they can scrounge up in whatever way is possible in order to tell stories that have previously been uh, unnoticed or um, left untold purposefully. Um, So I think that the first answer is there There are um, so many stories left to tell, and that keeps growing the more collecting work of historical documents and artifacts happens. And that, that really excites me because it means that um, the work that I did before, say, the Outdoor Recreation Archive existed um, over, you know, when I started my research on the industry um, more than a decade ago, is going to be enriched and in some places overturned by another generation of scholarship as more uh, stories come to light, as people look at a richer set of documents than I had access to um, 10 years ago. So that's really exciting. But I think the other answer to this question is, it depends on the infrastructure of academic research and the kind of support that will exist down the line. And that is a question about the future of, of humanities higher education, which I think is one that we certainly can't answer in the next five minutes, but it's just worth noting that the support for scholars and their ability to do the work is very much linked together. So in other words, having a um, a funded research uh, fellowship like Utah State does have means that scholars are able to make these trips that otherwise perhaps would not have been possible because funding on a national level is decreasing for a lot of humanities work. And so if institutions want to push telling histories from their materials, they probably have to fund visitors to those um, to those archives themselves. And so in that sense, I think my I have excitement on the one hand for all that's possible. And I have um, some ambivalence about what it's going to look like, in part because I think that uh, unless we match up the support for scholars with the kind of work that we as people who care about this industry history want to see happen, it's possible that the, it might take a long time for those stories to come to light. Um, I know we only have a couple minutes, but I wanted to ask this other maybe foundational question. Maybe it's a silly question, but I, I think a lot of people don't know this. But why do you think it's important that there are peer-reviewed articles and books and scholarship, you know, from that academic perspective being produced about the outdoor business? You know, I guess why why should that matter to people who work in the outdoor industry industry and beyond? People who don't know the academic world like, right. like we do. We understand right. the value of that, but I guess how would you describe that the importance yeah. of that peer reviewed you know academic work um i would say that part of what academics can bring is a distance in perspective that it's really hard to to have if you're an industry insider who's writing a history that's based on your own personal experience i love the books that have been produced by CEOs and founders of companies. I love the reflections about people who are from who worked in the industry for decades. I think they're invaluable and they are nothing like anything I could ever produce, right? In that sense, they are necessary. However, um, it's, it is easy to write from one's own individual perspective and think that you've captured a whole story or that your truth is the truth about a, a whole set of people that you can't possibly represent. And so in that sense, part of what academic work, just like journalistic work can do, 
is represent a broader set of questions that one person couldn't necessarily do by themselves. And so in that sense, I don't think it's the process of peer review exactly, but rather the distance and the kind of ability to dedicate ourselves that academics have to projects for years at a time and go to multiple archives, look at multiple uh, historical characters or companies that makes our story sometimes broader and more situated in a context that readers um, will recognize. In other words, I love these in insider reports on what happened in the outdoor industry, but they can read as insider baseball, which is to say, um, if you don't already understand some of the background, you might not see the debates or questions of what that are at stake. Um, or be able to say, wait, what else is happening in the 1970s that shaped the boom that you all are talking about? And so that's part of what academic research can do is provide that broader perspective and set of questions. Um, and then I also think that the peer review process itself, which is about other academics vetting um, pushing uh, scholars to improve, and then ultimately approving for publication, articles or books themselves, means that there is a check on the information on the research process and on the arguments, not just for accuracy, which is really important, but on kind of the good faith effort to have included all the relevant information. And no one who's writing from a personal perspective has to do that. That's not their job. They're not obligated if it's a type of memoir to do that kind of work. Academics are, though. And so if you want to understand something in the big picture, you are far more likely to get that from an academic perspective, and we, we just hope that they're going to write it in a compelling and accessible way, than you are from one individual account. And, and that's part of why I use all of the rich materials that do exist, both primary documents from the time periods that we're talking about, as well as contemporary reflections from people who lived through that era. And then I make use of them to make broader claims about the themes that I'm seeing emerging. And I hope that I can do justice to those stories while adding in what I think is the necessary context and historical perspective. Well, this has been great. I know we've got to we've got to end here, but how do how do people how can people best connect with your work or support your work moving forward? I know you have quite a few incredible publications that people can engage with on your website, but how's the best way to engage and, and stay connected with what you're producing? Sure. So my my website uh, um, is uh, rachel grosscom and I'm happy to share additional con. I have additional contact information, inclu including my university email address, up on there. Um, but I think what you what you pointed out earlier is certainly true, which is once the big box book as well as the book on the history of the outdoor industry more broadly come out next year. Um, that's a that's a way that I'm happy to share that material, um, both in written form, of course, but also in terms of uh, speaking and anywhere that that audiences are interested in this. I'm delighted to be in the room with them. And so um, I hope that those connections are things that we can help facilitate over the next year or so. Well, that's great. We're looking forward to your book tour. So, <laughs> yeah, me too. Thanks. Jason. Well, thank you, Rachel. Thanks for taking the time. It's always good to catch up with you. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.